Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It's brought to you this week by ExpressVPN and Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm doing great. There's a lot going on. Um, I'm preparing to give a 10-minute long speech followed by a committee meeting that is streamed live on the internet. Sorry, that's a deep cut. That's what we just watched, mm-hmm. um, the, the National Space Council. The way that works is that the vice president appears and gives a speech, and then as the Space Council sits behind him, and then they have a committee meeting on a stage. Mm-hmm. Yay! Yeah, in Huntsville this time, so. Yeah. It's okay. Awkward. I've been in that room. I love that lem lem back there. It look, looks good. It's a good backdrop. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, we're going to get to a bunch of that stuff, but we have a few pre-flight checklist items to go through. Yeah. And the first one is I wanted to point people to an episode of the Tested podcast. Tested is Adam Savage's website where they do cool maker stuff and nerd stuff. And they had Todd Miller on, who is the director and editor of the Apollo 11 documentary that we saw for last episode. And it is it is a great interview. And Todd gets into how they came across this footage. You know, we all know that this, a lot of this footage hadn't been seen before. And they kind of go through the story of how that came to light. And the the uh, it's really cool. They, they actually had like software tools built so they could go through and basically hear all the audio recorded, say, on the ground loops at any given time and go in and turn, basically turn people or sections of audio on and off to like narrow down what they wanted. It's an incredible amount of data they had to sort through. And in watching the film and, and, and us talking about it, I kind of had in the back of my mind, is like, how do you organize something like that, right? Mm. You're talking about tons and tons of, of video and e- even more audio, right? You've got you know, dozens and dozens of people working these consoles and everything's recorded. And how do you, how do you go through it? So if you're like me and are interested in that behind the scenes stuff, I highly recommend this interview over on Tested. Yeah, I'm going to check it out. That sounds really cool. I love the process stuff of uh, how, how you make this thing because it, it looks great, but there's also the work of actually archiving all that content. It's amazing. It's really, really fascinating. Um, kind of, in conjunction with that, speaking of Apollo 11, I saw this linked over on Jason Cocky's site the other day, and uh, David Scott has been putting together press kits produced by the Apollo contractors. And a lot of these were around Apollo 11, as you may imagine. And I, I was looking through these the other night. I mean, it's from companies like Fisher Space Pen and, uh, you know, Grumman and Boeing and you know all contractors big and small and it, it is really cool to see this stuff and yeah you know it's press stuff so you, you know, get it is what it is but it is a really fun little time capsule right and how things looked in the 1960s it's pretty fun yeah it's a historical document aspect mm-hmm. of it even even uh, ads and press releases are interesting when they're a historical document instead of just an ad. Like, over time, they get more interesting. Sure. Actually, because then you're like, the assumptions that are made are, are always fascinating and stuff mm-hmm. like that. We're like, is that how people talked back then? I guess. Yeah, so if, you, if you're looking for a, uh, a fun way to spend an evening flipping through some old PDFs, it's a good way to go. Um, I've got one. It is, uh, so they were going to do a uh, spacewalk that was going to be the first 
uh, all-woman spacewalk with Christina Koch and Anne McLean on the International Space Station. And um, that spacewalk has been reassigned mm-hmm. so that it will be Nick Haig uh, joining Anne McLean doing that spacewalk. Um, and all the stories about this are what you might expect, which is, as I put in the show notes here, the patriarchy wins again, right? Oh, no, two two women can't do a spacewalk. We got to have a guy out there. It's actually a fascinating and complex situation where they have... So, first off, spacesuits, right? Like, these are EVA suits that were, that were designed 40 years ago. There are only... They, there were only, I think, less than 20 of them, and now there are only... Uh, a dozen or so, and only four on the ISS. They have to be serviced back on Earth. They can't be serviced at the ISS. And um, although they have um, different sizes available, uh, there are challenges with that. Um, So to back this up, Anne McLean trained for EVAs uh, back in the U.S., using um, the large top and seemed like that was going to be okay. But then I believe she did a a spacewalk earlier this week and um, the, the, the tops of these spacesuits need to fit. They need to fit very tightly. Right. And, and, and and there are, even when you test in like a neutral buoyancy environment, like a, you know, in a, in a swimming pool, um, there are gravity effects. It's not the same as true weightlessness. And apparently, during her spacewalk, she found that the large, um, the large shell was not going to work for her. That it was, and and, and um, the less fitting it is, the more dangerous it is. The harder it is to get to the controls on the suit. Um, and so, as a as a safety matter, she said. I'm not comfortable doing an EVA in the large top. And at that point, they've got two medium tops, so they could use those. But the problem is it takes 12 hours of work, kind of laborious work, to reconfigure a spacesuit um, so that they could reconfigure the the medium to uh, to be ready to go outside. Currently, they have a medium and a large configured. And so basically what that meant was the two women who need the mediums would not be able to go outside unless they did the reconfiguration and the next spacewalk is only in a few days and there's not enough time in their schedule to do that. So the the easy story here is that uh, the NASA can't handle two women going outside into space at the same time. The truth is NASA's spacesuits are old Um, there are lots of issues with them and, uh, it's a safety issue about one of the women saying, I can't use this size, but Mm -hmm. there are, there are larger issues. There used to be like an extra large and then they made it go away and then they brought it back. There also used to be a small and they made that go away and it never came back. There's a nice thread that we can put in the show notes from Mary Robinette Kowal, who is a uh, science fiction writer who has done, uh, who's written two, I've mentioned her on the show before, two really great books about a kind of alternate history uh, space race 
And uh, she did a lot of research into this. And she talks about all of the kind of complex issues that go into this. And Eric Berger at Ars Technica wrote a story that basically says, no, it's not a conspiracy, that goes into like all of the extenuating circumstances that led into this decision. Um, And I think I agree with Mary Robinette Kowal, which is, no, this isn't about women astronauts on one level, but it is on another level kind of about women astronauts, just in the sense that the procedures and the decisions made along the way in the development and upkeep of these spacesuits do lead you to a point where you're in a situation like this. And because of those kind of assumptions made earlier, all of a sudden you don't have two of them prepped that will fit women. Now, um, uh, I think, is it Kowal, I think also points out that um, that the Russian the Russians have only had like four female cosmonauts at the space station and they 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 only have one eva suit and it doesn't fit women that's basically the story there so so nasa is doing a better job here but uh you know i I can't read these stories without coming away with a larger point which is um this is an area that has been really ignored over 40 years not not women in space spacesuits like these spacesuits were made on old assumptions and they're old. And where is the next generation spacesuit? And there have been lots of different projects to work on, like the next generation EVA suit. But, you know, as we talk about Gateway and things like that, uh, it's just not it's just not uh, not there. We still got these things. And because of the way that they're designed and because of the numbers and because of the prepping, in this case, this historic uh, all-woman spacewalk uh, doesn't get to happen, which is, uh, regardless of the whole backstory about it, uh, mm-hmm. still a bummer. Yeah, there's a, there's a PDF that, that she includes in her tweet thread from the NASA Office of Inspector General back from 2017, but looking at the development of spacesuits. And it's like this 60 page PDF that uh, I did not read all of it. I skimmed it, <laughs> but the, um, you know, the, the story is they're they're not where they need to be with us. And they're yeah. relying on technology that is uh, aging. And like you said, really well built with wrong assumptions about who yeah. is going to be using them. And this is another piece of the puzzle as NASA moves forward going talking about going back to the moon, which we're going to talk about in a second, going to Mars the spacesuit is a huge part of that, and NASA is just not prepared for that at this point. Yeah, if you think about it, the uh, spacesuits have been in service. Um, the the spacesuits were put into service about the same time that the first um, women were put in the astronaut class. So they do they were designed with the idea that women would be present. But it's way before there was even an American woman in space. So that's how old. So you can imagine the assumptions were maybe not the, the greatest and, and maybe made it a little bit more complicated for women than for men to um, function uh, in an EVA. So mm-hmm. anyway, let's let's hope that uh, as part of all of the things that are going on in, in space development and the talk about that gateway station and talk about other things being done in deep space, that one of the things that's going to get a kick in the pants maybe is the development of a next generation EVA suit. Uh, b- before we move on, I did want to talk about Starhopper, which is SpaceX test bed for the Raptor engines. We had some tweets about this the other day that it looked like they're going to do their first uh, static fire so that the thing is still tethered to the ground, but working towards lighting those motors. As of this recording, they have not 
uh, gotten there yet, but it seems like it could be any day. There have been tests of loading propellant on and off the vehicle and uh, getting those motors ready to fire. Of course, these engines have been test fired in test stands, but now there's a bunch of them at the bottom of a shiny aluminum foil covered rocket. So that's exciting to see. Yeah. In Texas. In Texas. Yes. And, uh, uh, there was another story that SpaceX is looking to expand that campus in Texas um, for more manufacturing and more testing of the Starship Super Heavy, whatever Elon is calling it today, uh, for that design. So uh, early stages still, you know, this thing has not gone off the ground yet. And when it does, this is, uh, like we spoke about, very much a test vehicle, but an important step towards their next rocket. Yep, it's good to know. Plus, it's shiny. Who doesn't like shiny, Jason? It is shiny. That is that is its its uh, most interesting trait. Looking through these pictures, you know, in the Texas sun, you wouldn't want to walk past it. You might you may get uh no, you might be melted. You may <laughs> get melted. It could happen. Don't park a car near it because yeah, yeah. it may reflect off there and then melt it. Um, we got a lot of base council stuff to talk about and some other stuff. Maybe we'll go to Neptune. Could happen. But I should tell uh, the listeners about our sponsor first. Should I not? Sounds good. Okay, ExpressVPN. Here's how it works. You put it on your laptop, your tablet, your phone, and it makes an encrypted connection to the internet, which means that all the data that flows out of your device um, is not visible by the people who are looking at it. And people could be looking at it. If you're on an unencrypted Wi-Fi connection, um, that data can be spied upon by people who are just sitting nearby. Your cell phone carrier, your cable provider, can also look and see what kinds of things you're doing on the internet and use that to track you and to build a profile on you. There are all sorts of ways, whether they're you know hackers or whether it's legitimate businesses that have built a business model on watching what you do. Um, you can get those people blocked. You can basically send them away by using ExpressVPN. So it secures and anonymizes your internet browsing. It's encrypting all that data. It's hiding your public IP address. It is uh, easy to use. The apps run seamlessly in the background of any of your devices. You can turn it on with one click, and then you're safely free to surf on the public Wi-Fi or anywhere else without being snooped on. It was rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. I have tried it out. It is super easy to use. Um, it, you can uh, you can change where you're coming from as well. So if you want to be like an IP address in, in Europe or in uh, Asia, you can do that too. They have different servers in different places. Um, and it definitely is uh, one of those things that, you know, sometimes you're on janky Wi-Fi and you're like, I don't trust these people. I don't know who this is. And the nice thing about it is you can still use the internet connection from it, but it can't see anything that you're doing while you're doing it, which is a really nice way to use the free Wi-Fi somewhere. Because you can't, can you trust that free Wi-Fi? Could that free Wi-Fi actually be a fake put in by a hacker to watch what you're doing? Well, it could be, but if you connect and you uh, use the VPN from ExpressVPN, that's it. That's it. doesn't matter because they can't see what you're doing. Less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN production that I have. So if you've ever used public Wi-Fi, if you want to keep bad guys away from your stuff, go to expressvpn.com slash liftoff to learn more, protect your online activity today, and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash liftoff. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com. I sang it this time. Slash liftoff for three months free with a one-year package. Thank you, ExpressVPN, for supporting Liftoff and all of Relay FM. I liked your song. Thank you. It was nice. I'm working on it. There's just a rhythm to it, you know? Yeah. 
So like you said, today, uh, March 26th, was a meeting of the National Space Council, where Mike Pence and friends get together and talk about space policy. Uh, Pence opened with a speech that yeah. I think <laughs> yeah, history will judge one way or another. <laughs> this, uh-huh. this will be a speech that's not forgotten anytime soon. So we opened doing Mike Pence things, talking about the Space Force, you know, reiterating that the plan is to go to the moon. Uh, he then, before getting to his big point, uh, went to go speak about our friend, the SLS. So a couple of weeks ago in our episode, there was a lot of drama around Brian Stein and others saying, you know, look, we're open to commercial partners for EM-1 for the uncrewed Orion test if, uh, if the SLS isn't ready. And I think in the two weeks since then, it has been made clear to NASA that the SLS is is still important to Congress and still important mm-hmm. to uh, the American people. And so Pence said that the current timeline is, is his word, unacceptable, and that America, in his view, is in a high-stakes space race with both China and Russia, quoting that Chinese lunar lander we spoke about yep. on the far side of the moon talking about what Russia's doing, talking about America's continued dependence on Russia to get our crew uh, into space and back safely. Clearly, Pence is, is unhappy with that that status quo and reiterate that the SLS is the future and that they need to get it back on track. Keeping in mind that this is all happening in Huntsville, Alabama, yes. uh, right? So it's the people who make the big rockets. It's the people who are working on the SLS. And that that it, it's it's... Interesting, because there are moments where he's like, hey, Alabama, great mm-hmm. to be here, right? And then there are other yeah. moments where it's like, mm, this isn't going well, and we will use other means if we need to. I think that's all fascinating. There is a point that he mentions uh, later on, and that was backed up by some other people, where they started talking about like next generation uh, solar system engines that would be nuclear. Mm-hmm. And I definitely saw some people speculating on Twitter that that was the back door for, well, what happens if we kill the SLS? What happens to Huntsville, Alabama? And the answer might be, uh, you know, next generation nuclear propulsion right. or something, right? Something. Where they like they basically fund them and give them something else to do, even if SLS kind of like fades away. And that's, uh, you know, the politics of this. That's entirely uh, possible that you kind of, you know, you could the quid pro quo of like, well, we'll let you we'll let you take this thing off the books if you put some other money in somewhere else. And 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 that's that's how a lot of this stuff works. I also have talked about it before and I was uh, kind of chuckling to myself as I watched the part where he says, you know, it's a it's a space race and China's already on the moon and we need to go to the South Pole of the moon in, in order to because it's strategic and, you know, they, we can't let them have the high ground and all of these things that are um I've been saying for a while now, like, the reason we landed on the moon was because of the space space race with Russia and having an adversary and wanting to be first. And although, and, and, and so I view Pence's statements with this kind of duality of, first off, it is inflaming, you know, tension and saying, oh, we got to beat China. Um, at, at the same time, that is kind of how this stuff gets done, right? Like, is by saying, we got to be China. It's like, you know, we can go to the moon whenever, whatever. Oh, but China's going? Well, then we have to go there and we have to beat them. We have to be first. And like, that is how 
uh, this stuff is often accomplished. So um, I did kind of smile when I when I heard him say that because the, the threat of not being preeminent is a big motivator in Americans, especially funding things like a space program. Uh, so, so Pence's big statement here and why I say this speech will not be forgotten anytime soon is that he is calling, uh, he and he, he says multiple times, reminds people he speaks on behalf of the president, that they are calling on NASA to return Americans to the moon in the next five years, which is a big, bold statement. Yeah, and the story he tells is basically all of the projections were we'll be we'll we'll get there in twenty twenty eight, twenty twenty nine, something like that. Mm-hmm. This is like that's not soon enough. Is basically what the the vice president is saying here. That's right. not soon enough. Let's set ourselves a more ambitious goal. Um, you know, we got we went from nothing to the moon in a very short period of time in the sixties. Surely, if we prioritize five years, you know, moon in five years and set that as the goal, then you realign everything else to meet the goal. And that's a way to get there, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, there again, Eric Berger from ours had a, had a nice uh, tweet about it. That was very much like, this is a big thing to ask and it may not be plausible, but there is something motivating and focusing about having a specific goal and as the space program has kind of meandered the the human space program has meandered in the u.s for the last you know 40 years um having a clear goal like this can focus an organization and have it make hard decisions about like is this going to get us to the moon in five years or not um and and i i think there's truth in that like we i think there's a great conversation to be had and perhaps we'll have some of it here about whether this is realistic at all but i do really like the idea of saying here's what we're going to do like here's a goal to shoot for and not we'll get to mars eventually but like we're going to go to the moon and not even like eventually but by this date can we do it and it i i did at one point when he said five years, expect him to peel off his mask and reveal that he's Elon Musk <laughs> making com- making comments that are not uh, likely to happen in the time frame that he's describing. But I do like the idea of saying, uh, let's set a goal here. I think you stumbled into something that I really want to talk about where the, the, the inner conflict between this and other things the administration and NASA have been doing. You know, it's totally possible that today is like a a fresh start of this is you know this means they're going to kill other things and really focus but the budget that was just announced 2 weeks ago doesn't support this in in terms of financing which we can get to in a little bit but also in terms of priority so you still have lunar gateway you still have the international space station you still have the drama around SLS and Brian 2 weeks ago saying hey we're going to put we're going to we're going to velcro Orion to the top of an Atlas V or a Falcon Heavy or whatever it takes to do this. You can see where that came from, right? Like this is obviously part of that same conversation, which is the he was laying the groundwork there, which yeah. then there was that response of like, "Oh, but oh, we could do the SLS if it happens faster." And Pence's uh speech is very much in that same line of mm-hmm. that that same way of thinking, which is, well, you know, you all here in Alabama can work on this and and find ways to streamline this, but we also have other commercial partners, and we're happy to use them too. Yeah, I think that's fair, and I think that Brinstein, you know, spoke after Pence and and said that he thinks he now thinks that it can be ready by twenty twenty for EM one. I mean, I think they're leaving the door open that if it's not ready, that they can go elsewhere, and that yeah. they are laying the groundwork now, saying that. That will be the decision that they that they make, and I guess that's if Congress <laughs> allows them. But it, 
it's so I, I don't think SLS is any safer or less safe than it was before this. I really I think it's still in limbo. I think the lunar gateway is a more perhaps a more interesting topic because the five year plan, if you overlay that with what the agency is saying the lunar gateway plan is, this mission doesn't go through the gateway. This this seems yes. to be a direct mission, Apollo style. If you want to get there in five years that I think that's the only way to do it, right? It's to, to borrow a phrase from our friend Tom Hanks from the Earth to the Moon. It's not from the Earth to the Gateway to the Moon. Yeah. And that is uh, <laughs> something else that I want to see more uh, more from NASA and more from the administration about. You know, They just had Canada last week uh, sign on to be uh, a partner in the Gateway, a long-term partnership bringing their uh, robotic arm technology uh, to that platform, just like they had, just like they did the shuttle, just like they did the station. And I, there's a there's a, an argument to be had, and, and honestly, one I think that makes pretty good sense that if you're going to go to the moon in five years, you got to put Gateway on ice and and come back to it once we are have met this goal and are ready to to start building a platform from which um, you know going to the moon on a more regular basis is easier, and eventually to Mars. You can go from the Earth to the Moon directly if you have a big rocket. Uh, see previous conversation, mm-hmm. but if the if but that is a different goal than making it sustainable. If you want to put a if you want to put boots on the ground in five years, go direct, and then work on the gateway where you can be there in cislunar space permanently. And that is just different from what they have set up to this point. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they how they connect all of that um, together. That, that, you know, how do you justify, how do you, what story are you telling about Gateway uh, along with giving people to the moon? And are, is that happening in, in parallel or mm-hmm. are they staged? And yeah, it's, there, there's so many questions here. Like, it's mostly questions. It is. Yeah. I re- this really feels like this is day one of a new conversation. And, and mm-hmm. so it's not super surprising we don't have all the answers yet. It's just these are things that I think you and I and others are going to be looking for as this plan unfolds over the coming weeks and months, because it's not going to unfold over years if they're going to do it, right? Like <laughs> We're going to have to know the plan pretty soon. And Gateway is a huge thing I'm going to be looking at. What is uh, what is the agency's plan there? You know, there's a, there was a – Space Twitter obviously was on fire today. And yeah. so I apologize to whoever said this, but they were like, there's money to do this if you get rid of one of the big three projects. If you want to do this – and you pull out of ISS or, or just don't do Gateway, that makes it a lot easier. But right now you're cutting your pie, your exploration pie, into three big pieces, mm-hmm. and maybe it takes two. And I think that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, I think so. The bu- budgeting in general, and um, Katie Mack pointed this out on Twitter today, um, is that uh, you know whether you look at real dollars or you look at percentage of the overall federal budget, you know the solution here if you really want to commit the U.S. to go back to the moon in a short period of time, is not to do, trust me, I did this in the private sector, um, you know, hey, launch a new project with your existing budget. Boy, that is a recipe for failure. Mm -hmm. Launch a new project with a new budget is a recipe for success. At least you can spend that money. Uh, And I was somebody who was tasked with launching a big new project with literally no new staff and no new budget. Sure. It's like, oh boy, you know, you can cannibalize from other places, but even then you got to keep the existing things going. And Mm -hmm. it's not, uh, it's like, it's not a thing that can be done. So Katie Mack's point was, uh, great, let's go to the moon, raise NASA's budget. Mm 
mm-hmm. and the administration has not proposed large budgets for NASA, and and Congress has made them somewhat larger. But like, this is the kind of thing that if we want to go to the moon, and there and there's vital need because China's going to be there, and it's the high ground, and we need it for strategic reasons, and there's a space force and all of this stuff. Well, you know what? Maybe the NASA budget needs to increase by fifty percent, right? Maybe it needs to increase. Maybe it needs to double. Like in the height of Apollo, the NASA budget was like what four percent of the U.S. budget, Somewhere and now it's it's like half of one percent. Mm-hmm. So that that's uh, the other thing that I think we all have to be watching here and and looking for is the words are nice, but where's the money? Because this takes money. This isn't one of the reasons we haven't gone to the moon is not a lack of leadership. One of the reasons, one of the big reasons is that nobody has funded NASA to the level that they could do this, to even, not even to the level of Apollo, to the level of half of Apollo. Just, nope, that has not yeah. been the case since then. And so, you, what, you know, the, you got to pay for, for it. It's expensive. Mm-hmm. You got to pay to go to the moon. Yeah, absolutely. The, the Wikipedia article in the show notes is out of date a little bit, but they do have a table uh, adjusting everything to 2014 dollars, and even then, uh, we haven't we haven't reached those funding levels of the the mid to especially the late 60s. And you're right if this if this is something the administration is serious about, they need to put money behind it because that that is a obviously a critical piece to this. There were other issues to consider, but money solves a lot of problems. I guess that kind of comes to the sort of the realities of this. You've got the budget stuff, but there's no lunar lander. There's that, the, you know, that's the biggest one. Like there's no, we've talked about, there's no rocket up, but we, we've got there are rockets that are going to be able to get people to space and there are rockets that can get equipment to space. So mm-hmm. you could theoretically use multiple rockets. This was the idea behind that SLS diversion that Bridenstine had talked about. It was like, well, maybe we, you know, don't use the SLS, but we can send astronauts up on uh, SpaceX or, you know, uh, on, in the Boeing capsule. And then we can use, maybe we use Falcon Heavy to launch a spacecraft. And then they do uh, an Earth rendezvous and they go to the moon. Like, we could do that. What do they land with, right? Unless they're going to take that limb from behind them in, in Huntsville and say, no, this will work. We dust this baby off. Like, you need a lunar lander vehicle. And I know that there are commercial organizations that have been working on, like, lunar landers. But they're like, those are like lunar landers for robots, not for people. So are we? is a lunar lander going to be designed in the next and and deployed and tested and used in the next five years, that's the big piece that I that I wonder about is like we don't have something to land on the moon right now. I, I think you, I agree. I think that's the biggest gap in the hardware plan. There's rockets. Orion is close. The Boeing Starliner is a little bit behind, but coming. Crew Dragon is very close. Like, but that closing that gap to the surface. Uh, just like in Apollo, I mean, we just spoke about this with Apollo Nine and the the limb dragging along uh, behind in the Apollo program, and for a while it looked like that was going to be the thing that make it yeah. the deadline be missed. And that's why Gateway sort of made sense, right? Because it was mm-hmm. like we can do space station, and then we can develop the lander, right? But this is like, yeah, again, I, I I think this is the red flag for me. I mean, there's lots of red flags here, but like the reddest of the flags the is that we know nothing about a, a, a human rated lunar lander at all. Yep. 
I, I agree. I think that's the. I don't think there's a lunar. Uh, speaking of spacesuits, by the way, I don't think there's a a a lunar rated spacesuit design either at this point. So the the like there are all all of these pieces that like great ro- rockets. We have the ability to get to a place where we can send people in rockets to interesting places, but to have them get outside, have them to go go down and land on the surface, I haven't seen a lot. To suggest that we could do that in five years. I guess we'll see. I guess we'll, <laughs> well, well, I hope so. I hope we see. I mean, all in all, like, this is an inspiring goal. It's, yeah. It's big and bold. And, like, I think, like, at first, I sort of rolled my eyes a little bit, like, Pence, you know, comparing this to the call Kennedy made. And to a degree, you can roll your eyes at that a little bit. But there is the, the same theme of, like, America, we're going to, to all get pointed in the same direction. And we are going to be... Uh, first there again here in the 21st century, as he said, and that's inspiring, right? Like, that's an exciting time. If you follow this stuff, I'm yeah. sure if you're sitting in the audience and you work at Marshall or you work at another agency or part of NASA and you're watching this, it is inspiring. And now it's time for the government to put things in line for the people who work on these things to be successful. And that's what we're going to look for next. All right, we got a little more to talk about, but let me tell you about our second sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea, and you can use it with a unique domain name, lay it out with one of their award-winning templates, and much more. So maybe you want to create an online store. Maybe you're making something and you want to put it in the world for people to buy. You can do that with Squarespace. Maybe you're an artist or a photographer or a musician and you want to share your work with the world. Well, you can do that with a portfolio powered by Squarespace. Maybe you're really interested in something like space or old computers and you want to write about that and become a blogger. Squarespace has the tools for that too because it's the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that stuff. The best thing is you don't have to become some sort of server admin to make this happen. There's nothing to install. There are no patches to worry about. There are no upgrades needed. Squarespace has all that covered. And if you need help, they have award-winning 24-7 customer support that's just incredible. They allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all of those award-winning templates I mentioned earlier are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I've shared this elsewhere, but in the last couple of weeks, a friend of mine starting a new business that's very exciting, and he needed a website. So he, he called me because I'm his friend who knows how computers work, and he said, hey, I need a website for my new company. And just need to get a little contact information out, have some graphics. We did this uh, interactive map thing, and we did it in a couple of days on Squarespace. The bulk of the work was done in a single afternoon, and he was going in and adding content and tweaking colors and really dialing in exactly what he wanted. And this guy's not a web developer. He just is a guy with an idea and Squarespace let him bring it to life. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name and to show your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. I'd like to thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So Jason, are we going to go to Neptune? Yeah, let's do it. All right, I'll, I'll pack my bags. 
<laughs> Neptune away. Uh, yeah. So th- this is a story that is fun to take our, our, our uh, eyes off of uh, near space for a moment and look a little bit further out into the solar system. Uh, there is a proposal that was made at a uh, at a conference that is by Jet Propulsion Lab and the Lunar and Planetary Institute, and the idea is to send a mission that would fo- to Neptune that would focus on on Triton, which is the large moon of Neptune. And there are a lot of really interesting things about this proposal. One of them is that it is not a flagship proposal. Most of the missions to the outer solar system are flagship missions. They cost more than a billion dollars. This is meant to be a discovery program mission, and that means that it would cost less than $500 million. So a much cheaper mission. Um, there, it, It's going to go up against other missions that are, are trying to get that discovery funding, including missions to the moon, a mission to Io, Jupiter's moon, and of course, Venus, which is always trying. We're always trying to yep. go back to Venus. Yep, always. You're, you'll get your... Uh... Uh, fiery sky blimps one day, Jason. Yeah, I know. I want. I want this. I want the blimps, Venus blimps. It's got to be that. That would be so great. Anyway, I'm not talking about Venus. I'm talking about <laughs> outer solar system now. You, you're getting me off track. Uh, Triton. So Triton is interesting in part because it's large, in part because it's generally thought that it is probably a Kuiper Belt object that got captured by Neptune. Um, in terms of the solar system's geography, Neptune is on is the large planet on the outer reaches of the planetary zone of our solar system, which means it has a huge influence on the little stuff that is out beyond it, the little icy balls that are out there, including Pluto and others. Um, and uh, so it's got a, a lot of uh, gravitational influence. And it's thought that one of those Kuiper Belt objects, something like Pluto, got captured by Neptune's gravity and became a moon, and that's Triton. One of the nice things about that is, as New Horizons has shown, Kuiper Belt objects are interesting, and they're also extremely far away. But Triton isn't. Triton got caught by Neptune. So we could go to Neptune and get uh, some ideas about other Kuiper Belt objects. It's also thought that Triton may have a liquid water ocean or a liquid water with some ammonia built in (laughs) to uh, lower the freezing temperature even more ocean beneath it, which is interesting in terms of like uh, life in the solar system in other places. Uh, And the, the bottom line is that not only Triton, but Neptune itself, very interesting place in our solar system that we have only seen really well through one of the Voyager probes flying past it. And that was it. And so um, Triton, we haven't even seen all of it. We've seen, you know, some of it as Voyager flew by, but that's about it. Um, I think it's the largest body in the solar system to not have been closely explored at this point. It's, uh, you know, we haven't seen all of it, in other words, (laughs) which is kind of weird to think about. And uh, in 1989, as Voyager passed it, it saw some potential plumes of material, potentially like, you know, Enceladus fountains or something, possibly. Um, the point, the place where they are on Triton is a place that will be in shadow, uh, like, for 80 years, starting in 2040. So the, there's also an argument, a time argument to get to Triton when that thing that we saw is still lit up by the sun so that we could potentially see it. And uh, the final point that they, the, the people making this proposal made is that Voyager... One and two were great, but their technology was basically like 
a TV camera taking pictures and sending them over a fax machine. And that is mean because those Voyager pictures are beautiful. But their point is our technology is so much better now that sending a small under $500 million mission to Triton and Neptune uh, is going to get us so much more information than we could have gotten uh, from Voyager uh, in its in its one little flyby. So I say, Stephen, let's go to Neptune. I'm going to be like Mike Pence, except I'm going to say, Neptune, let us go to Neptune. Let us seize the highest ground there is in the solar system. Neptune. I, I love it. I, I love this okay, program great. with the discovery money, these, these smaller less expensive programs they can really lead to some interesting things and I, this i think is is an excellent candidate for uh for that sort of funding yeah yeah i i'm excited by it i mean again i like venus too the other missions sound cool but i love the idea like as we've talked about on this podcast a bunch kind of in a lull of new planetary science missions and it's really frustrating and uh oh yeah this is you gotta gotta get them cranked up again and they don't all have to be uh flagships they they there are these other missions that are relatively speaking kind of cheap and like the idea of for less than half a billion which is pretty good for a space probe you get to go to neptune which is a place that we've never stayed that's great like that that is really exciting and the the fact that they've got a captured kuiper belt object out there so it's also a way to study the kuiper belt like i like that sales pitch too so uh very exciting uh maybe uh maybe there's a chance that we'll uh get to see more about neptune in our lifetimes that would be great it would be. Until then, or until we land on the moon, if you want to find links to stuff we've spoken about this episode, head on over to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 94. While you're there, there's some links in the sidebar. I would encourage you to check out. One is to our Tumblr account where we post links to things uh, in between episodes. I can tell you right now, there were two stories we had to cut from this episode for time. Uh, so yeah. those will end up being blog posts uh, this week from one of us. And uh, you can follow it there or you can find us on Twitter. We're often talking about space stuff there. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. You can find Jason there as Jay Snell. And you can follow me on Twitter as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.